morning, after a uh, four-week uh, hiatus for uh, Advent, we are going to be back in the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll be there till the end of the semester. And uh, to get us back thinking through that, it's, uh, it is 2024. Uh, which means it's the 40th anniversary of uh, the Ralph Macchio movie, uh, Karate Kid, which uh, makes me feel very old. Um, but uh, sadly, there's college students, I think, don't know this, this movie. But uh, here's, the, here's the gist. Uh, Daniel Russo is this teenage boy, single mom, who moved from the East Coast to the West Coast, finds himself in high school, having a hard time. He's getting beaten up by the, by the bully, jock you know, Johnny Lawrence, disoriented about who he is, uh, why he's there, until he meets this father figure karate expert named Mr. Miyagi. And so Mr. he asked him to train him, so Mr. Miyagi starts telling him to do things around the house, like paint the fence and wax on and wax off his car, all this kind of stuff, all right? And you, the viewer, don't know what's going on either, first time. I'm not scared about... If you haven't seen a movie that was produced in 1984, it's your fault, okay? So I'm going to ruin it for you. And in this scene, that is, it's always a chill scene for me. Daniel gets to the point of frustration because he, he's tired, he's angry, he's frustrated. He doesn't know why he's doing what he's doing. He says, you know what, Mr. Yagi, I'm done. <laughs> he said, all I've done is become your servant. I asked you to train me. I'm out of here. And Mr. Yagi goes, Daniel, son. And he says, what? He says, come here. And then he says, uh... He says, show me wax on. And when he does wax on, he, hit, he goes, hi. And then he starts kicking. And then he starts swinging. And all these things that he's been doing start, uh, start defending all, all the moves in karate. And he realizes at that moment, it's this chill scene, <laughs> that though he had no idea what was going on, though he was frustrated and exhausted, Mr. Miyagi actually knew everything that was going on. He knew more what Daniel needed than Daniel knew himself and put him through that. And in this passage that we're about to read, I want you to keep that image in your head because Matthew keeps presenting to us that Jesus is the promised hero. He's the Messiah that is going to save his people and heal the world of everything that's wrong. But what Jesus does here, he's in complete control like he always is. But the disciples find themselves in a situation that makes no sense, that is dark and that is scary. And Matthew's asking you to see that Jesus knows what you need, what the disciples need more than they actually know themselves. And he's going to walk with them through it. So we're actually going to, I'm going to do a little something different. We're just going to read the text portion by portion and just kind of walk through the story. So we'll read the first two verses. We'll say uh, this is the word of the Lord together, but then we're just going to walk through it together. So here's Matthew 14. It's actually in your Bibles, page 820. uh, If you have the pew Bible, start in verse 22. Immediately he, talking about Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so here's the setting, right? Jesus fed 5,000 people miraculously multiplying bread and fish, and then he dismisses them. But I want you to think about this because the text tells you that he, he sends them in, out on this boat. He makes his disciples get out on a boat and go alone, and he stays back on a mountain and begins to pray. And I want you to remember two things about this. First, in the ancient Near East mind, Melvin talks about this a lot in Sunday school, the, the sea, the waters were not in the same way that you and I think about it. They were always symbols of chaos, 
of scary things. That's how they saw the sea. And then when you combine that with darkness, which is when they go out there, it's also a symbol of the unknown. So Jesus sends them out into a place that is known as chaotic, unknown, and scary. And Jesus is, right, as the New City Catechism says, he is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. And he sends his disciples out on a boat, probably around 6 p.m., right? So darkness is descending. He, Jesus knowingly sends them into a place that's going to have a storm in the middle of the night. So he sends them into a place that is unknown, dark, and chaotic. And he sends them in a way that his physical presence isn't going to be with them so that they feel alone. Now think about that. Jesus knowingly sends his disciples into a place that is going to be scary, into a place that's going to cultivate doubt and fear. Why? Because Jesus doesn't even come to him until about 3 a.m., we'll find out, so, which means for hours upon hours, the disciples are working, rowing, tired, exhausted, getting scared in the middle of the night, probably disoriented, and Jesus is nowhere to be found, and this is Jesus' plan. So, <clears throat> Elizabeth Elliot, uh, wife of the pastor Jim Elliot, and became a seminary teacher herself, amazing woman. Uh, she tells the story of when one time she was out on a farm. Uh, she called him Farmer Jim. She knows Farmer Jim had this huge vat of antiseptic. And she had heard all these dogs kind of barking and, and nipping, and she went over to look. And what had happened is the farmer had put these sheep and rams into the antiseptic, right, to keep them from uh, getting parasites. But the sheep and the rams, in their perspective, this farmer is trying to kill them, <laughs> trying to drown them. So they keep trying to crawl out. Every time they try to crawl out, a dog would come up and, and nip at them and bark and push them back in. And so as Elizabeth Elliot started realizing what was going on, she's like, I just wish I could explain to these sheep <laughs> that what you think the farmer and the dogs are doing that feels like they're trying to kill you in this chaos is the thing that is actually going to preserve your life. But right, the sheep didn't have the capacity to understand that. And see, I, I think we got to start here when we talk about chaos and storms and whatever else, because all of it, some of you this morning are sitting in a place that really discourages you, and it's real, and it makes you anxious, and it's a place of suffering. And we have a hard time with that. We have a hard time in those places of chaos thinking that like Jesus is somehow in control. Now, some of you have been around people who, who, who stay in that place, and it's amazing to be around somebody who does that, but most of us tend to do one of three things when we, when we kind of find our place in a place of darkness or chaos. First of all, sometimes I think we do what probably the disciples thought. I'm not imposing this on the text, but at some level they had to think, where's Jesus? Jesus sent us out on this boat. He stayed back at the shore. We're now miles away from him. And it's getting crazy. And that's how, sometimes how it feels in these places of chaos. We think, Jesus left me alone. <laughs> and I think, sometimes I even think, okay, I'm a dad. I love my kids. If my kids are ever in a, in a place that they're lonely, I like try to fix it, whether they want to or not. <laughs> even my kids get bored. I just try to relieve their boredom. So I would think if I'm experiencing loneliness... Or if you're experiencing chronic pain or depression, then surely Jesus would fix that. So if he hasn't, it seems like he's no part of this. He feels absent. 
So we think, I guess I, I just got to figure this out myself. That's sometimes where we turn kind of in places of, uh, of kind of darkness and chaos as we just say, I guess Jesus isn't a part of this. I'll figure it out. Another place sometimes we turn is we think, well, God is present and he must be mad at me. He must be trying to get my attention. Clearly, I'm on the wrong side of God. Either that thing I did years ago is finally catching up to me or I knew it, my news resolutions, I'm not reading my Bible like I should or whatever. And God is trying to get my attention so I'll get back into his good graces. And so that's the second thing we do, that when things kind of get out of control or it's a place of suffering, we think, well, maybe God is mad at me. Or the third thing that I think sometimes we do, and it sounds really humble, is we just try to minimize the place of chaos and darkness. And a lot of times we do it by comparing to other people and we're like, well, at least I don't live in Ukraine, right? At least I know where my meal is. And, and we, we deal with it by just kind of minimizing it and acting like it's not a big deal. But typically what we have a hard time holding together, though again, you've probably observed some people who do this and it's amazing. What we usually have a hard time holding together is believing that the suffering and the pain and the chaos and darkness is real and it's pressing in on us, and at the same time believing that I'm walking in the storm because Jesus loves me, because he is with me and is at work. That's what's hard to believe. But it's what Matthew wants us to see, that Jesus absolutely brings things into the disciples' life that they cannot handle, and he brings things into our lives that we cannot handle, that are too big for us. So to think or to say that God will never bring anything into your life that you can't handle, it's a lie. (laughs) It's not in Scripture. He brings stuff into our life all the time that we can't handle so that we need Jesus, so that we sit in humility with him and, and somehow grapple with the fact that Jesus still loves me. And so the question is, how like how can that happen? How can Jesus be the hero that sets the world to rights again and yet, and yet bring people into disorienting circumstances. And I think it's because one of the things that he's healing is stuff inside of us. And it's sometimes only through places of chaos and darkness that things get, get healed. And I think it's worth noting that, right, they are out in this place of chaos and darkness. And Jesus, at least for some portion of the time, is actually praying, which means he was praying for them too. And I think that's actually an incredible picture because Hebrews says that Jesus makes intercession for us, which means that that's true today, that in places where we feel like Jesus is absent, he actually is praying for us. You've never been off his mind. And so that's, what, that's kind of the setting as, as you set up for what's about to happen. And then here, we're going to pick back up in verse 25. So in the fourth watch of the night, he, Jesus, came to them walking on the sea When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Okay. So it's three, maybe four in the morning. And remember, a few of these disciples are actually experienced fishermen. So they lived on the sea. So you you just got to imagine the scene, okay? Because when I first read this, I think, well, that would be cool to see. No, it wouldn't. If you had been out in the darkness in the middle of the sea, rowing at your oars for hours upon hours, tired with waves beating up against the boat in a scary situation, and all of a sudden you looked and you saw a man walking effortlessly through the sea towards you, 
that would not be cool. That would be terrifying. (laughs) And you would think the same thing that they thought, that's a ghost. (laughs) Because no man, no flesh and blood just effortlessly walks upon the sea. And so they scream out in terror and Jesus hears them, and I guess starts walking towards them, which then probably becomes more terrifying. And he says, it is I, take heart, do not be afraid. And they can hardly believe what they, they heard and hardly believe what they see, that it is Jesus. The one they were just with, like hours ago, miles ago, they left him on the shore. So what's happening here? Look, I, I'm uh, taking from my friend Ricky Jones, who, by the way, is going to be our men's conference speaker in, in a few months. He's going to be awesome. But There are so many ways you could go with this passage and people go in so many ways. I just want to focus on the one thing, the word that you hear over and over again in this passage, which is fear, terrified, afraid. Because I think what what you're being forced to kind of see is that in places of darkness and chaos, and as Jesus works through it, what it does is it reveals, and it reveals fear. Okay, think about a way that a storm works. Have you ever been like at the beach and you look one day and it is like crystal clear and calm? And then you go to sleep and a storm rolls through and you wake up the next day. All of a sudden the ocean is now like murky and dirty and there's all this trash. What happened? The storm actually came through. It didn't create stuff. It churned up stuff that was underneath that you used to not see and it revealed it and it exposed it. That's what storms do. And that's what like struggles and places of chaos and darkness in your own life, what they do is they churn up and they reveal things that have always been below the surface. They've always been below the surface and you can't see them in normal circumstances. And usually what's exposed is our fears. And we say, well, what's the problem with fears? Because normal fear is good. Like fear, like if an alligator would walk in this room, where's that be? We would run. That's, that's good fear. That's how God created fear. And fear of the Lord is the thing uh, that, that, that means worship that we're supposed to be about. But there's an unhealthy fear that the Bible talks about. And it's this. Unhealthy fear is, is the fear of losing something that you're convinced holds your life together. Right? What we most fear losing is the thing that we hold on to to make our life feel secure, to make me feel okay. And what storms and trials and chaos, what they tend to do often is they reveal unhealthy fears, things that we're clinging to to make our life make sense. For instance, if what, uh, if what you worship is control, like maybe, maybe you've just always had that personality that kind of knows how to charm people, and maybe you're really competent at work and you can just execute it all the time, but then you come upon a place that is just chaotic, that you can't control, like maybe one of your children or maybe uh, someone in your family or near you, you can't charm them. You can't just pull a lever and, and, and stay in control. What does that do? It starts, it's, it starts disrupting things. It starts, starts bringing to the surface this fear because it feels like my life is falling apart. But what's happening is it's, the storm is threatening your control. <laughs> it's threatening this, the, the thing that you think brings safety. But actually, that's not the thing that's keeping you safe. But it's, but it's revealing it. And so what, what storms do many times is they just churn up the stuff that we hold on to and think, as long as I have this, I'm okay. And it exposes it. But then what you see is that Jesus draws near. And they see Jesus walking on the storm. They see Jesus, this is what's amazing, not just stopping the waves and the wind, though that's incredible, 
the wind and the waves are actually doing his bidding, and he's walking on water. So he shows the disciples, yes, his power, but Jesus doesn't break the laws of nature. Jesus makes the laws of nature do his bidding. That's incredible. So look, I'm not, I'm not trying to simplify this because anytime you talk about suffering or place of darkness, you can make it sound so simple. And I know this can take years upon years to work through. And it's not always this simple because look, sometimes stuff comes in your life and, so, and we don't know why it's there and that's okay. But oftentimes, oftentimes, the Bible does talk about suffering and trials as being a place where God grows us and makes us more like himself because he draws near to reveal the things in our heart we otherwise would never see and to somehow begin to trust him and see that he's the one we should fear. And that's what I think begins to happen here. And so we keep going, right? Pick back up in verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water and came to Jesus when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Okay, so Peter answers. He always seems to be one that answers is awesome, and he always seems to speak for the, for the disciples. He says, okay, if it's you, command me to come out, and I will. And Jesus says, come. And I've tried to put myself in Peter's shoes. Like, it's remarkable. Imagine what it would be like to be in a boat amidst a storm, huge waves and wind, and someone out <laughs> walking in water says, come. Imagine it'd be like to swing your leg over the boat and just let yourself drop. Terrifying. And yet when he drops, the water holds and he stands on top of the water and he starts walking towards Jesus. That's incredible, right? I'm going to come back to, and we're going to talk about Peter because I think we're actually unfair to Peter, okay? But, you, but what you get here is this incredible illustration of what, it, what is faith? What does it mean to walk by faith? Right? Because faith is this, it's a great word. It's a biblical word. It's a christian word that gets thrown around all the time. But what in the world does faith mean? Romans 11, I mean, Hebrews 11 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things seen, uh, unseen. So faith is a trust, a conviction of the truth of something, even if I can't see it. But even that feels like, I don't know, just words. And that's why I love this picture. And I at least probably once every six or seven months, I quote Paige Benton Brown because she uses this image that I think is so helpful. Okay, She says, all faith is, is what's in your foreground and what's in your background. What are you focused on? Whatever you're focused on, that is what your faith is in. That is your trust. So think if you... If you're to take a, you know, a fa- if you're to take a picture of someone in front of a beautiful mountain, you got a choice. You can f- you can focus your camera on the family, and if that's the case, the mountain will be kind of blurry in the background, but the family will be in focus, right? Or you can choose to focus on the mountain, and that kind of takes takes the sharper focus. That takes the the foreground, and the family will be a little bit blurry. But you can't focus on both. What faith is is what's ever in your foreground. It's whatever you're focusing on. And so saving faith, walking by faith, means that what you keep in the foreground is Jesus and who he is and what he's done for you and his character. And so this is what happens, right? Peter gets out of the boat. He swings his legs over. He sits down, and his focus is Jesus. 
the storm is real, the wind is real, the waves are real, but somehow Jesus is in the foreground so that he sees the things that would be scary through Jesus, through his care, through his love, and through his power. And then at some point, I don't know how much time passes, 10 seconds, I don't know, the foreground and the background flip. And all of a sudden, what is, what is in front is the waves and the wind, and he sees Jesus through that, and he falls. Because now Jesus is viewed through the chaos, through the darkness. And living by faith or coming to Jesus the first time just simply means Jesus in the foreground. Seeing everything through the character and person and work of Jesus. He's the grid by which I see everything. And that's, that's hard. And we're going to come back to that, but it is the way. And so Peter shows us this just great picture of saving and walking by faith. So I can either have my loneliness in the foreground, which is pressing in on me, and see Jesus through that, and he looks, uh, he looks far off like he doesn't care, or I can flip it and see, see my loneliness through Jesus who loves me, who is near, who has died for me. It doesn't change your loneliness necessarily, but it changes the way that you walk in it. Some of you have, have parents that are declining in age. I can, I can see, I can have my, my, my parents' declining health in the foreground and see Jesus through that, or I can flip it and fight to see Jesus in the foreground and see my aging parents through his loving care. That's what it looks like to live by faith. And then it ends like this, right? Verse 31 through 33. So Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. All right, look, I, maybe you've interacted with this passage before, maybe not. But a lot of times the, the takeaway that I've heard is like, Peter started out doing great, and then dang it, he failed. He took his eyes off Jesus, so just keep your eyes on Jesus. And that is true, but like, man, I, I want you to see that Peter is so encouraging. Because look, Peter trusted Jesus, he responded to his call, he trusted his goodness, and he believed, and then, I don't know, 15 seconds later, he forgets, and he doesn't believe. And isn't that true? Like, for any of you who have walked for, with Jesus for any amount of time, isn't that what it feels like? Yes, I know you're good. I know you love me. I know you've forgiven me. And then it's this afternoon and I've completely forgotten about it. And we get told, just keep our eyes on Jesus. Again, I'm going to go back to Ricky here. Let's just be honest. It's not easy to keep your eyes on Jesus. It's not. Uh, it's, a, it's a simple concept. But to keep Jesus in the foreground when your loneliness is pressing in, when that's the daily reality that you feel, or to keep Jesus in the foreground when you're when your parent who you love is really suffering and that presses in or your parent's divorce is, is still painful to you, it's hard to keep your eyes on Jesus. And it sounds simple, but it's hard. And you just realize, like, if somebody told you, hey, look, just do these five things every day. Read your Bible, pray, confess one or two uh, sins and give money to the poor. You would do those things. You can kind of do those things. <laughs> but living by faith, where Jesus is in the foreground and everything else is in the background, that is hard. And that's why I'm so glad that Peter like, doesn't keep his eyes on Jesus because none of us do. And this is the beauty. Peter nails it. As soon as he sinks, he cries out. 
He just cries out for Jesus. And he admits his inability and he admits his need of Jesus. And I love what happens. It says immediately the strong arm of Jesus grabs him. Because what it shows us is that what saves Peter from death and what saves us is not how strong our faith is or how well we can keep our eyes on Jesus. What saved Peter was, this, was how strong Jesus' arm was. What saved Peter was Jesus' grace and Jesus' commitment to Peter. That's why Peter doesn't die. And that's why Peter's with Jesus in the boat. He gets him back in. Because it is who Jesus is that ultimately saves. It's the object of your faith, not how well you're believing. So I'll bring it to a close. Uh, my friend Way Rutherford uh, talked about this. Uh, this is true, I feel like about one in t- every 10 movie that you see that involves a car chase, okay? This is what happens, right? Especially if, if a bad guy jumps in the car with a good guy, it's like, you better drive, right? And the good guy oh, starts driving. Well, eventually the good guy looks over and realizes the bad guy's not wearing his seatbelt, right? And gets an idea. Maybe it's because he's watched all these other movies. And so then what he does, he speeds up, right? And he like rams into like a house or a tree. And again, you don't know whether, he doesn't know whether it's going to work or not. But then what happens is when he rams into that tree, the bad guy goes through the windshield and he stays safe. Why? Because he knew that this would work? Because he was like so sure of it? No. The reason is because the power of the seatbelt. That's what saved him. This is what Jesus is showing Peter. This is what Jesus is showing us is that the saving power is not in how well you believe, but solely in the power of Jesus, and he is enough. I, w- like I, d- I wish I could say that following Jesus made our lives simple and easy, but it doesn't. Like Storms are either here or it's coming, and living by faith is hard, but it's worth it. Because here's what you will find, is if you keep following the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to actually go through his own storm. It's the cosmic storm. He's going to go to a place of true darkness and true chaos where he's going to go onto a cross and he's going to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because he is, he's actually bearing the consequences of my sin and your sin, all those who trust, and he's bearing the wrath of God. The one thing that we should fear. He's doing it for you and for me. And as you keep that a crucified Savior who then resurrects three days later to defeat it, as that stays in the foreground, as that shows you who the glory of God is, it doesn't mean that the storm immediately goes away. But it does mean that you can trust Him. It does mean that He's near you, and it does mean that He'll walk with you through it. And it means that nothing, as hard as this is to make sense of, nothing touches you that doesn't first come through the loving hands of Jesus. And I know that is hard because the scriptures say that either presently today you're in a place of chaos or one day it's coming. And I wish that wasn't the case, but Matthew is inviting you into reality to see and to be with the one who actually is in control of the chaos, sends you into it, and then comes into the storm with you and saves you by his death, resurrection, and presence and says you can trust him. And that is to lead us to where the disciples end, where they worship Jesus and they see who he really is. And that's the invitation to you. Let's pray. Father, uh, you, uh, you really are with us and you're in control of all things. And yet 
there are people here this morning that find themselves in places that are so dark uh, they can't figure out what's going on. And so I hope this doesn't sound trite, but would you, would you move towards them? Uh, would you convince that you are walking near them amidst the storm and that your hand is strong enough to save them? Do you give them the faith and us to have you in the foreground, to see everything uh, through the presence of your loving care, even when it doesn't make sense? That would be a good morning if we could uh, see Jesus. In your son's name I pray. Amen.